0: You're listening to a podcast brought to you by the Center for Community Media at Worcester State University. On Tuesday, September 19th, David Barsamian visited the Worcester State University campus. He gave a talk titled Media, Propaganda, and U.S. Foreign Policy. The talk was presented by the Provost Series on Democracy and Diplomacy. The event was co sponsored by the Office of Academic Affairs the Department of Graduate and Continuing Education, the Dean's Office of Humanities and Social Science, the Dean's Office of Education, Health, and Natural Science, the Departments of Communication, Earth, Environment, and Physics, English, History and Political Science, and Philosophy, as well as the Center for Teaching and Learning. Introducing Barsamian is Associate Vice President for Academic Affairs, Henry Terrio.
1: I'm really proud to open up our second uh, Provost Series on Democracy and Diplomacy event for 2017-2018 um, featuring uh, David Barsamian. Uh, the Provost Series, just very quickly, and you'll probably be seeing announcements in different, uh, of different events that will be coming up. Provost Series is a faculty-initiated uh, program that is aimed at both bringing interesting, challenging speakers to campus, and also developing faculty and student programs on campus that try to engage the really difficult issues that everyone's talking about in our society, but to do it in a thoughtful, productive, respectful, and ultimately very critical way. Um, so we have no, uh, no better way to start off uh, this process than, than our speaker tonight. Um, he is an internationally renowned journalist who, uh, in addition to starting alternative radio, which um, maybe he'll comment on a little bit the genesis of that, which is a fascinating story in itself. um, A a weekly radio station heard nationally and internationally on more than 250 uh, outlets, uh, and and featuring some of the, the kinds of voices that I think we all need to hear to understand our society, the global society, and the sort of challenging issues we're facing but we often don't have a chance to hear in the mainstream media. Um, He is also uh, a a well-respected and and prolific author, um, having co-written books with people like Edward Said, Arundhati Roy, um, and most notably, uh, he is about to publish his 11th book with Noam Chomsky, who some of you may know as one of the leading public intellectuals um, in the U.S. over the past 50 years. Um, really tremendous uh, tremendous work, really important in, in various ways. And I'm going to say one personal thing um, to David. First time I heard him was years ago, I was a grad student, been at Worcester State for many years. I won't tell you when this was, but we'll say it was a lot longer ago than I would like to, like to recall. I was a grad student at UMass Amherst and was driving on Route 9. From Amherst to um, Northampton, and because we have a lot of the UMass uh, alumni here and in, in the faculty, I'm putting that in. And I'm driving along, and also I'm listening to this NPR station out of New York, Troy, New York area. Do you remember? Yeah, um, yeah. So they, so I'm listening, and I start hearing this something that I couldn't believe was on the radio. It was a discussion by this esteemed uh, professor, Richard Hovindessian on denial of the Armenian genocide. I know there are some members of the Armenian community here, so you'll appreciate that as well. And I almost had to pull over so I would avoid having an accident, because in, especially at this period, almost um, more than 25 years ago, this kind of discussion was never, never on public airways, ever. So I'm listening, and then after you know the, the program was over, I hear David Barsamian's voice come on, Announced, you know, telling me this is alternative radio, I was completely new to it, and became, you know, just so impressed with what he was doing, got the, you know, looking at the catalog of people he was having speak, um, and it was just an amazing experience for me, and I think that speaks to what a lot of people have gone through in, in, in sort of engaging the work that he's done, the writing, alternative radio, and so forth while in our society now and I think in past years we face a lot of challenges, a lot of difficulties and you know it's easy to become really pessimistic about the future of our society, um, about our capacity for instance not to be you know racist and and, uh, anti-GLBT and so forth. There are all these problems that we see. But when we hear on our public airways, when we hear really thoughtful accomplished people discussing these issues in positive and productive ways outlining the problems and really challenging us to get to solutions it helps change the hopelessness that we often feel in the face of that i certainly have felt in the past to if not all out hope at least a sense that something can be done and that i and you all can be a part of of changing things and in a way, that's what journalism, when journalism is at its best. When it shows us the things that we don't see, shows us the things that people are trying to keep us from seeing, but then helps suggest ways in which we can take that knowledge, take that insight, take these truths that we've gathered, and do something positive with them in our society. There is, in the United States and maybe globally, no one better than David Barsamian at doing that the true uh, great journalist. So I don't want to spend any more time introducing him. I could spend an hour phrasing all the great things he's done. Um, but really the, the idea is to have you to get a chance to hear him. And then I really want to emphasize, we hope you'll stay and enter a discussion after his remarks. Regardless of you agree or disagree or anything like that, really enter into a discussion. That's the hope of the Provost series to flesh out some of these ideas and take the the issues that have been presented um, and work with them to think about how they relate to Worcester State, to Worcester, to Massachusetts, and to the U.S. Without further ado, um, thank you so much David for coming. Uh, Please welcome David Barsani. That
2: was a way too generous uh, introduction. Uh, Thank you so much, Henry. And one of the joys Coming to Rooster, it's my third visit. You know, traveling. Last week I was in uh, Vancouver, British Columbia. I'm going to uh, Maine, I'm coming back to Boston, I'm going to Oregon, traveling a lot. Going through the scareports that's what I call them, and, uh, and the endless questioning that I'm subjected to. Uh, since I went to Iran in uh, September of last year, just a year ago, every single time I've gone to a U.S. Airport, I've been held for secondary questioning. As you can see, I'm a very dangerous-looking person. I'm surprised you're all not like quaking in your boots. I'm su- such an imposing figure, right? Uh, and you know, to, so to endure that, the humiliations by these semi-literate uh, TSA officers. You know what TSA stands for? Thousands standing around. It's a jobs program for retired military and cops and fire people who you know, don't know the difference between Iraq and Iran. You know, it seems almost to be a qualification not to know geography or any other foreign language, you know, to get one of those jobs. So I go through all that BS to meet people like uh, Henry, to meet you, to connect, because that's what gives me energy. Uh, people then see the, you know, the face behind the voice or the voice behind the face. Uh, And that is incredibly um, enriching and uh, something I enjoy doing. But the rest of it is just awful. I mean, air travel in the United States, I mean, you feel like you're in a cow car anyway, the way they're packing you in uh, like sardines. But that's, you know, and that's getting worse because of deregulation, which started with the airlines in the 1980s under that great emancipator and great communicator, uh, Ronald Reagan whose very first act as president was to smash a labor union, the air traffic controllers. And what did our great AFL-CIO do under Lane Kirkland? Absolutely silent. There was no solidarity for those 12,000 air traffic controllers that, who lost their jobs because Reagan fired them. What was Lane Kirkland worried about? Workers in Poland with Lech Walesa, Lech Walesa and the Solidarity Movement. You, some of you are old enough maybe to remember that. Uh, that was his big focus because he was a fanatical uh, anti-communist. Anyway, that's not uh, the title of my subject of my talk. But uh, it's wonderful to see you all here. And let's start with a little Armenian lesson. You can all do it. It's the word for hello. And it's called parev, P-A-R-E-V, parev.
1: Good to see you. Thank
2: you for coming, and uh, thanks for organizing this, uh, Henry. And uh, I see there might be a couple of people in the audience who remember a class called Penmanship. Do any of you remember? No, it's a very obscure art. It's, it's about writing clearly. The reason I make this kind of joke is that whenever I hand out a sign-up sheet, to, you know, to, so I can connect with you, I can't read three quarters of the addresses when I go get back to Boulder. So if you could write very clearly your, your name or, and your email in particular so we can keep in touch, I'd be very much appreciative. You don't have to worry about my sharing this with the NSA or the FBI because they already have all your information, so you're safe. <laughs> so I'm gonna start over here. And uh, here's a pen, and if you'll take that. If you don't feel like, don't feel obligated to sign up. Well, I'm going to talk about uh, a number of uh, issues this evening. Next year will be the 70th anniversary of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, the UN uh, HR, which is the foundation of international uh, moral law, which incidentally was uh, flouted and flaunted Uh, today by uh, President Trump at the UN when he violated international law, uh, which prohibits not just the use of force, but the threat of force. Uh, He used the sentence, destroy North Korea. He also uh, said he called Iran a rogue nation. Now, Iran, uh, let me talk a little bit about. Iran and then um, you know, sort of ca- counterpose that with uh, Saudi Arabia because it's an interesting kind of uh, experiment. You know? And you don't have to have a PhD from uh, Harvard in international relations to figure this stuff out, by the way. Uh, one of the things that you know, the power structure likes to inculcate in the population is that you need specialized training to understand what's going on in the world. You don't. You need common sense. You just need to have a memory. You, you need to have uh, you know, resistance to amnesia, because we live in the USA, as Gore Vidal says, the United States of amnesia, where everything is forgotten and very little is uh, retained. Now, uh, Trump called uh, Iran a rogue nation. OK, let's say it's a rogue nation. All right, we'll grant him that. Is not the United States a rogue nation? when it bombs multiple countries, invades and occupies multiple countries, all in violation of international law. It's like no big secret, but international law and the UN Declaration of, of Human Rights is applied selectively. You know, it's, a, it's like a political football. And for any law uh, to have not just validity but uh, moral strength and influence it has to be applied selectively not just to your designated enemies so let's take you know iran uh, for example you know, i've been there multiple times i speak a little bit of farsi so i can kind of uh, get around uh, you know there are lots of problems internal problems in iran it is you know a mulocracy, it's run by mullahs it's a sectarian state yes 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 all those things uh, are true. Let's compare it to Saudi Arabia, Arabia, for example, where women cannot drive. They have very few legal rights. No rights of custody and divorce uh, proceedings, uh, owning property, things like that, uh, are not available to a Saudi woman. I, women. I make a joke sometimes, a bad joke, that if a, a Saudi woman went to you know sleep bed tonight in Riyadh or in some other city in Saudi Arabia and woke up tomorrow in Iran, she thinks she would be in heaven. You know, it's, it's all comp- it's comparative because she would have rights in Iran. She could drive a car. She could easily get um, education. She could own property. She could get a divorce. She could get custody of uh, children in a divorce case. So, you know, and Saudi Arabia, has uh, you know, kind of positioned itself. Isn't it ironic that the first country that Trump visited was Saudi Arabia, which is a kleptocracy? It's, it's not really a country like uh, these other Gulf monarchies, the United Arab Emirates and uh, Kuwait. These are family-run businesses. Think of Walmart. And then you should think of Saudi Arabia and these other Gulf monarchies that we so warmly embrace. The Walmart run is a privately owned company by the, run by the Walton family, and Saudi Arabia is a privately run country run by the Saud family. And the same thing in Kuwait with the Sabah family. The same thing in the Emirates with all their little, uh, you know, sheikhs and emirs running uh, the running the show in, in those countries. Saudi Arabia is the country, of course, which brought us, to some extent, uh, I'm not going to say directly, but Saudi Arabia is a quixotic ally of the United States, to say the least. And what do I mean by that? 15 of the 19 9-11 hijackers were from Saudi Arabia. So what did we had another enlightened president at that time. You know, it's hard to keep up with the geniuses. The political system keeps generating. You know, George W. Bush, a couple of people remember who he is. Uh, you know, he, did he attack uh, Saudi Arabia? No, he attacked Afghanistan. There wasn't a single Afghan involved in 9-11. Uh, these were, you know, 50, you know, it was largely a, a Saudi-run uh, operation. So, and and the other thing Bush did at that time, just a few days after the 9/11 attack, do any of you remember this? He flew out 150 members of the Saudi royal family who were in the United States at the time for their own protection, because there might have been a a backlash against them. Extraordinary! And uh, you know, there were jokes. They were smoking cigars with the Saudi ambassador in the White House, you know, and uh, they were calling him. Uh, Bin Bush, Bin Bandar was his his name at the time. Saudi Arabia has supported extremist jihadi groups from Pakistan to Syria. In the 1980s, it bankrolled the Mujahideen. These were Reagan's freedom fighters. Do you remember that? You invited (laughs) them to the White House. These were wonderful members of Afghan society, homicidal maniacs, drug traffickers, warlords, uh, you know, what, sectarian fanatics, etc. He called them freedom fighters and armed them to the teeth. Who did the Mujahideen evolve into? The Taliban. What did the Taliban evolve into? Al-Qaeda. What did Al-Qaeda evolve into? ISIS. And you have one group proliferating after another, feeding off the previous uh, group. So these kind of unholy alliances have enormous consequences. There's a term in CIA-speak called blowback. It it means the unintended consequences of US foreign policy. So that wasn't necessarily by supporting the Afghan Mujahideen against, against the Soviets in the 1980s in Afghanistan, it wasn't necessarily the intention that they should turn into the Taliban and Al-Qaeda and these other radical Islamic uh, fundamentalist groups. But that's, in fact, what happened, blowback. Then uh, when the Taliban took power in Afghanistan, ending the civil war there, one of the first countries, actually only three countries in the world uh, recognized the Taliban regime in Kabul. And again, you know, liberal democracies. Pakistan, Saudi Arabia, and the United Arab Emirates. Those are the only three countries to recognize uh, the Taliban. Uh, torture, hangings, and an atrocious human rights record has required Washington to engage in a kind of um, intellectual jujitsu. To explain their its alliance with Riyadh, with Saudi Arabia. It's a feudal and closed system. And do you think the US would have this relation with this is a rhetorical question? With Saudi Arabia if their principal export were broccoli? That's a tough question. It doesn't require a yes or no answer. Maybe I'll give you a multiple choice. What if they had just figs or dates or olives? You know, which is so widely uh, found in the Middle East. Do you think the U.S. would have this intimate relationship with Saudi Arabia? You have to ask yourself uh, that question. Franklin D. Roosevelt answered that question in 1945, when he met with the then autocratic king of Saudi Arabia, Ibn Saud, on a U.S. destroyer, the Quincy, in the Suez Canal, and that's where the Faustian bargain was struck. FDR told Ibn Saud, we want your oil. By the way, and keep the British and the French out of your oil fields. We want it all for ourselves. And Ibn Saud said, the king of Saudi Arabia, well, what do I get, dude? And, he, and FDR said, this is just two months before FDR died, by the way, uh, mid-February uh, 1945. He died on April uh, 12th, and he was flying home from Yalta where he had just met with uh, Stalin and with uh, Churchill. And what, what did Ibn Saud get in return for giving access to U.S. oil corporations? Absolute guarantee of protection from Washington. Washington would use its military might to protect the Saudi regime. That's the Faustian bargain that was struck in 1945, which has had extremely negative effects rippling down through the decades. And it continues today. Do you, know, you remember when uh, Trump went to, I was going to say Reagan, but they're kind of interchangeable. When Trump went to Saudi Arabia, his first visit, they did that insane sword dance. Did you see that? I mean, it's, it's, this is like Saturday Night Live stuff. I mean, Tina Fey, and Alec Baldwin should get a hold of this material and just you know use it, or John Oliver or Stephen Colbert, who are the real political analysts by the way, for the young people in the audience, who you can trust, who you can depend on, who cut through a lot of the propaganda and the crap that 's churned out by you know uh, Martha Raddatz and David Muir and all the other overpaid gas bags uh, who compete for the best air on the air i mean they 're full of hot air, these you know pundits who uh, you know, opine without any evidence whatsoever. They're just giving freely of of their opinion without support, without any supporting uh, evidence. And so, so, and what is Saudi Arabia? Let's just stay on this because this is a human rights crisis. There are multiple human rights crises going on uh, right now, and I'll touch upon a couple of the others. But perhaps none can. It's again, it's hard to measure suffering. But what's going on in Yemen is, is just an enormous uh, tragedy, which Saudi Arabia is largely responsible for. It is bombing Yemen indiscriminately, causing tens of thousands of casualties, casualties thousands of Yemeni uh, deaths. And uh, also has, and Yemen, by the way, is the poorest of 22 Arab countries. It doesn't have oil. It doesn't have any resources. And it also has the dubious distinction of perhaps being the first country in the world to run out of fresh water. Their fresh water supplies are uh, dwindling. It's a very serious issue. And as climate change accelerates, as temperatures go higher and higher, last summer in Baghdad, it was 54 degrees centigrade. That's 128 degrees Fahrenheit. Uh, And same thing in Kuwait and uh, in also in Pakistan and India, extremely high temperatures. And so water evaporates. It's harder and harder to uh, conserve water and, and to uh, keep it with uh, those kinds of uh, you know, daytime temperatures. Now, Yemen is on the brink of famine. Uh, the Saudi war and blockade uh, has caused a horrific cholera outbreak with almost a million children at risk. So this is a huge uh, humanitarian issue which, you know, if we had a functioning, I hate to say, regime in Washington, would be paying attention to rather than focusing on, you know, generating a war talk about uh, North Korea, war talk about uh, Iran, and, you know, putting the reins on Saudi Arabia because this simply could not happen without US acquiescence. Technically, the the Saudi war on Yemen is could not happen without the U.S. supplying the Saudi jet planes and bombers with uh, in-flight uh, air fuel as well as munitions. And by the way, Britain also sells billions of dollars of weapons to the Saudis. But we're number one when it comes to weapons sales. You know, you could all stand proudly as Americans uh, in the world. We spend more. We're number one in weapon sales, and we ourselves spend more than the nine next biggest countries combined on weaponry. These are not small countries, right? I mean, Germany, China, India, France, uh, Korea, Japan, all of those countries combined do not equal what the U.S. spends on uh, armaments. Now, why would I say bring that up on the campus? Well, I think you've got you know you pay tuition here Uh, you know there's more and more student debt in fact it's 1.3 trillion dollars there's no money in Washington to get to send to state uh, budget for state government budgets for education in fact that money is being uh, withdrawn it's being reduced and so we're creating a generation of debtors and you know which is going to inhibit a lot of the options that students have when they graduate because of this debt situation. There's plenty of money out there. It's the choices that the political elites make in Washington as to where that money goes. And right now, it's going hugely into the military-industrial complex. It's not going into education. It's not going into the environment. It's not going into providing health care for everyone. Uh, you know, regardless of, of their situation, universal single-payer health care. You know, it's not going to any of those things which we really need, which a society needs to flourish, to to enrich itself. It needs to have a healthy population. I like to flip, you know, the uh, Trump slogan, which he stole from Reagan, by the way, "Making America Great Again" uh, to "Make America Healthy Again." You know, we have uh, infant mortality rates that are, you know, exceeded by very few other countries, very few other industrialized countries. Slovenia, where millennia is, Trump is from, has index after health index exceeds the United States. I mean, it's a, sh- it's a scandal that that kind of money is is being wasted because what should be A human right, and again FDR talked about this in his 1944 State of the Union uh, address, he said that health, the right to health care, is a human right. It cannot be denied. And and that's what of course is going on. It has become uh, commodified. In fact, if you want to really read a radical speech, you have to go back in American history, although you can, you know, hear some of um, Maybe Jill Stein or Bernie Sanders uh, comments, but if you go back to Roosevelt's State of State of the Union address, 1944, it's stunning in in what it proposes. Let me just read to you a couple of couple of the things as rights: the right to a useful and remunerative job, the right to earn enough to provide adequate food and clothing and recreation. The right of every farmer to raise and sell his products at a return which will give him and his family a decent living. The right of every businessman or woman, large and small, to trade in an atmosphere of freedom from unfair competition and domination by monopolies. The right of every family to a decent home. The right to adequate medical care and the opportunity to achieve and enjoy good health. The right to adequate protection from the economic fears of old age, sickness, accident, and unemployment. And finally, the right to a good education. These are rights that we should be articulating and demanding from the political class that controls uh, the country. And yes, it is their country. We live here. But if you want to know who owns America and who runs the show, it's, it's not esoteric information. Just pick up any copy of the Fortune 500 or the Forbes 400, and you'll have the list of the largest corporations that dominate the economy. Many of them, incidentally, not just military industrial complex like Le- Lockheed Martin, Raytheon, um, United Technologies, Sikorsky, um, Northrop Grumman, and others, but also all of the petrochemical companies are in the top tier, as well as the pharmaceutical companies. So maybe some of you, yourselves, or your parents or grandparents, are getting gouged by these outrageous prices for, uh, for drugs, for prescription drugs, uh, which is, you know, drives many Americans to go to Mexico or to Canada to buy drugs, because the prices are much lower there. I was just in, um, as I said, in Vancouver about a week ago. And uh, a lot of Americans go to British Columbia, up uh, from Washington and Oregon, uh, to buy their drugs and, and you know, save huge, amount, huge amounts of money. Why are drugs so expensive? You have to ask yourself that. I mean, these are not luxury items, OK? So this is not about getting uh, an ear enhancement or some kind of body art. It's, it's something, it's not elective, it's absolutely required and mandatory if you're going to have a good health. But the pharmaceutical companies, and again, it's just a handful Pfizer, Eli Lilly, uh, um, Glax, Glaxo, Smith and Klein, and, and just one or two others like in every sector of our economy, there's monopoly control. The military sector, the pharmaceutical sector, agriculture, food tremendous concentration of uh, wealth and corporate power. And so these, ke- these drugs, by the way, are paid for, uh, developed, at the National Institutes of Health. How many of you have heard of that? It's, in, in fact, owned by us, we the people. It's public property. It's where the best scientists, or many of the best scientists, uh, you know, create cures, develop medicines, develop mac- the vaccines, which then, at public cost, you know, because it's something we need, but then something very mysterious happens. All of these developments, all of these new cures and, and new drugs, find, th- find their way into the private sector, almost by magic. And they, they then turn around and gouge us and gouge your parents and grandparents for these, uh, with these outrageous uh, prices, if we had a responsive political system that would listen to the demands of the people, not slogans like "lock her up, lock her up" or "build the wall and make America great again," you know that's just uh, you know fuel for the you know the the uh, crowds that turn out that want red meat. Uh, these are not these are not policies. These are Nuremberg electronic rallies that you know Goebbels and Hitler would have in- admired for how they are uh, orchestrated. So we don't really even have genuine capitalism uh, in the country. It's more like uh, state-supported, publicly-supported um, capitalism. That would be a much better way to describe it. For example, you know, you, you all think the internet was invented by Paul Allen and, and uh, Bill Gates in some uh, carriage house in Palo Alto or Sunnyvale. That's the mythology, right? The internet was invented by, invented by you. We invented the internet at the Pentagon, doing research there over the years and then turning it over to the private sector. If you look at avionics, the same kind of things, you know, the radar, all developed at public expense and then handed over to uh, private capital, who then charge us an arm and a leg for. Uh, inventions and and technologies that we have already paid for. I mean, the irony is just dripping, uh, yet very few uh, talk about it in any realistic uh, way. Now, coming back to human rights and and the situation in Yemen, which is a a huge uh, disaster, uh, largely perpetrated by our ally Saudi Arabia, but enabled by Uh, the US tremendously, and Britain to a lesser uh, extent. The new mantra for violating human rights is to say you're you're fighting terrorism. That's your permanent get out of jail pass. As soon as you say you're fighting terrorism, oh, I see. That's what it's about. We're with you, brother. You know, we went through 9-11. We got to support you. So what does Erdogan in Turkey, the dictator of Turkey, say? the new authoritarian, there's not a new authoritarian leader, but he's, uh, he's been in power since 2002, when the Kurdish people who have been oppressed inside of Turkey for decades uh, rise up and demand more rights, rights guaranteed to them by the United Universal uh, Declaration of Human Rights, by the way. They're not calling for anything uh, radically different uh, from that. Erdogan says, hey, they're, ter- they're terrorists. They're with ISIS. They're with Al-Qaeda. And that you know, kind of gets him off, off the hook. Uh, the same thing in India, a country from which I am banned, incidentally, because of my journalism. It's now been uh, seven years uh, since I cannot go to India. Uh, there is a fanatical Hindu fundamentalist in charge of India. His name is Narendra Modi. He's presided as the chief minister of Gujarat state uh, in a massacre of over 2,000 Muslims uh, earlier in the 2000s. Uh, since he's been uh, Prime Minister of India, uh, a number of Muslims have been attacked. There was a massacre in Muzaffar, Muzaffar Nagar. Uh, Muslims have been lynched, beaten. Uh, Christian churches have been attacked. Christians have been attacked. Non-Hindu minorities are under threat. And what, does Modi, what is Modi's explanation for what's going on? These are terrorists. Poor, the poorest of the poor the the Dalits for example the untouchables they have taken up arms against the Indian state you know wanting independence and a sense of dignity and self-respect they are called uh, terrorists the same thing in Kashmir which is overwhelmingly uh, Muslim they want independence from India which has been occupying Kashmir since 1947 it is the mostly the most densely militarized zone on the face of the earth. There are 600,000 Indian security forces in Kashmir, which is much smaller than the state of Massachusetts, uh, incidentally. And people, guess what? They don't like being occupied. They don't appreciate that. They don't appreciate being stopped at roadblocks, being searched, being asked for IDs, having their homes broken into in the middle of the night, having their mail. Uh, family members taken off, many of them disappeared when I was reporting uh, in Kashmir, I learned a couple of new phrases in English that I had never heard before, and I had people had to explain to me what they were what they were. one was uh, custodial deaths it's custodial deaths what 's that mean? It means state security forces arrest you and you mysteriously disappear in the system, never to be heard from again. The other thing. That uh, I picked up in an, another English word, which is used in Indian languages, actually. So uh, is encounter, where the uh, Indian security forces would plant evidence on suspected militants, and then say, "Look, you know, they're terrorists. Here's their guns. You know, here's here's their letters from Bin Laden with all, you know orders. Like someone would carry a letter from Bin Laden in their pocket, just by chance." You know, and it would be found just by chance. That kind of manufactured uh, terror is what uh, states are doing around uh, the world. Uh, there's an example of that going on right now in Myanmar, uh, the former Burma, where the 1.1 million uh, Muslim minority, they're called Rohingya, uh, are being uh, persecuted. Almost half of them have been driven into uh, incredibly impoverished uh, Bangladesh. By a woman who is largely lionized and admired in the West by you know, the liberal class, Aung San Suu Kyi, who won the Nobel Prize a few years ago, a great hero welcomed by Obama into the White House, uh, who is not lifting a finger to prevent the mass uh, atrocities being carried out by the largely Buddhist military forces in Myanmar, in the former. Uh, Burma, uh, driving out uh, the Rohingya minority, torching their villages, uh, raping women, massive human rights violations. Uh, The UN Secretary General just the other day said that uh, this is a classic case of ethnic cleansing. That's, I think, a kind of euphemism for genocide. Because one of the definitions of genocide is targeting a particular community. And this community is being targeted for extermination. They're being driven out of the country against their will. And they basically have no rights, because under the Burmese, the Myanmar Constitution, they were never granted citizenship. And Aung San Suu Kyi, who's got to know better, she's got to know the reality of this. She's not a stupid woman, uh, says, that they're really Bengalis; they're not from this country. They're from, you know, outside of of uh, Myanmar. Well, the evidence is that they've been living in Myanmar, the former Burma, for over a millennium. For over a thousand years, there has been a Rohingya presence in Western Myanmar. So that, you know, is something that's going on right now. That is, it's not as easy for the U.S. to do much because we don't have a lot of. Uh, Uh, economic leverage, but we still have, hard to believe, a little bit, a modicum of moral authority. And if the President or the Secretary of State were to make uh, comments, it would have an effect on, uh, I think, international uh, opinion. But why is there so much silence about Myanmar around the world in the face of these clear human rights violations? Well, one can only speculate, but guess what? Myanmar has that precious commodity that is so sought after. I'll give you a hint. It's three letters. The first letter is O. The third letter is L. So again, if you think they just had you know cranberries and raisins, uh, there might not be a lot of interest in Myanmar. But they do have uh, large deposits of oil and uh, natural gas, and that may be influencing Uh, the policy or lack of policy, lack of response to what is obviously uh, a major human rights catastrophe. So as I said, if international law, if human rights is to have any validity, if if it's to have any moral standing, it cannot be applied selectively. It must be applied universally. And we have to apply it to ourselves when it is uh, required. Now let's, let's move on to a less controversial uh, subject, which is Israel and the occupied territories. I'm sure here in Massachusetts it's widely debated and discussed. We are now, you know, this is the time of anniversaries. Uh, 2015 marked the 100th anniversary of the first genocide of the 20th century, the Turkish genocide of the Armenian population. Uh, 19, uh, 2016, marked one of the most duplicitous and treacherous treaties ever signed, and uh, and the bar is very high when I say this, uh, between the British and the French to divide the Middle East. It's called the Sykes-Picot Agreement. Uh, That's where the lines were drawn in the sand. That's where a lot of the conflict uh, that is occurring in the Middle East today was embedded because of the creation of artificial states uh, and divide and rule uh, policies. That was 2016. And 2017 is the centenary of the Balfour Declaration. How many of you have heard of the Balfour Declaration? It was the enabling document for uh, Zionism to create the state of Israel. The, the British foreign office, as said, Lord, Alfred, um, Arthur Balfour, who was the foreign secretary, wrote a letter to um, Lord Rothstein of of London, a major uh, banker, uh, saying that His Majesty's government looks with favor on the creation of a Jewish homeland in Palestine. And there was a little codicil after that, which is largely ignored, provided that the indigenous inhabitants are not discriminated against, that are that do not suffer as a result of this. And they took the Zionists took the Balfour Declaration and used that as its raison d'etre. It went into the League of Nations Charter, and that's something that they constantly refer to to uh, justify their legitimacy, to create a, a state, a homeland for the Jewish people. I mean there was a couple of problems with this Balfour Declaration. First of all, there was a large indigenous population, uh, fully close to a million, with just several thousand uh, Jewish people living in what was then Palestine. Many of them actually who had been uh, in the region for centuries. There, they had really been integrated uh, into uh, the uh, Middle East. And the other problem was that the British were signing over, you know. The deed to a house they didn't own, that they didn't, you know, that they physically controlled militarily, but had no legal right to do what they did. Well, that's you know, 2017. Today, we are in the 50th year of the longest occupation in modern times: the Israeli military occupation of uh, Palestinian uh, territory. 50 years have passed since Israel's victory in the Six-Day War, resulting in the longest military occupation, as I say. And on the ground, there has been a radical shift in demographics because of the settlements. What began as a few scattered outposts has now mushroomed into vast subdivisions and cities, with Jewish-only road networks connecting them, making it difficult for Palestinians to travel. Have any of you been to the West Bank, to, to that part of um, that one or two people? Well, you have to go and see it to believe it and to understand what's going on. Uh, let's say across the street there is this incredible subdivision. It looks like you think you're in San Diego. There's you know, tennis courts, uh, recreation centers, community centers, swimming pools, uh, beautiful, beautifully landscaped gardens. You know, wonderful housing, uh, etc. And on this side, and lots of water. So you have green grass over there. And on this side, you have where the Palestinians are, you have substandard housing, not enough water, uh, you know, no social services uh, to speak of. That's that reality for most Americans, is, has been largely hidden because of the corporate control media, which repeats the same shibboleths that are generated by president after president. By the way, this is a totally non-Protestant, non-non-Protestant, non-partisan issue when it comes to, to the Middle East, you know, whether it's Obama, or Clinton, or Bush, or the first Bush, or, or Trump, or Reagan, or Carter, Whoever the president might be, there is very little daylight between any among any of them uh, in terms of uh, justice for the Palestinians. Even if you say that, uh, it's considered controversial that these people should have rights. The indigenous population of the, of Palestine should have at least equal rights to the population that largely comes from Brooklyn, incidentally, in the United States and Canada and France and other countries. Who have moved there to displace them, uh, a lot of people don 't know what the Oslo Accords were. It, it was you know greatly celebrated here as you know the greatest thing since uh, sliced bread and you know the invention of ice cream. Uh, the, uh, the Oslo Accords were a kind of Versailles treaty for the Palestinians, in which they capitulated uh, their rights, many of their rights and. Palestine, what was left of it, the West Bank, was cut into three different zones. The largest zone is area C, which is where almost all the settlements are. there are six hundred thousand uh, Jewish settlers in, in this uh, particular zone, and it has total Israeli control. There is no Palestinian sovereignty on sixty percent of the West Bank. so what was supposed to be uh, you know an independent viable a Palestinian state at some point has turned into a Bantustan. And the silence around this is pretty annoying, I must say, to me. I mean, I'm privileged. I'm not living there. But it's got to rankle uh, people uh, in the region, people who live there, who feel their basic rights have been ignored, have been tossed overboard. Because, who knows, Western guilt over the Holocaust, and so, you know, Israel is granted all kinds of um, you know, um, abilities to violate uh, human rights and uh, international uh, law. And this issue of uh, Palestine, as Edward Said, um, I've got actually a couple of books there with with, uh, Said, one's called The the Pen and the Sword. He says, Palestine is a thankless cause, one in which you truly serve, you get nothing back but opprobrium, abuse, and ostracism. Palestine is the cruelest, most difficult cause to uphold, not because it is unjust, but because it is just and yet dangerous to speak about honestly and concretely. How many friends avoid the subject? How many colleagues, and he's an academic, right? How many colleagues want none of Palestine's controversy? How many bien-passant liberals have time for Bosnia, and Chechnya, and Somalia, and Rwanda, and South Africa? and Nicaragua, and Vietnam, and human and civil rights everywhere on Earth, but not for Palestine and not for Palestinians." Uh, Edward Said, who's you know, perhaps the most eloquent uh, voice that uh, Palestinians had, passed away in 2003. I think you know to talk about human rights, we also have to talk about another very unpleasant subject uh, that is not Uh, you know, raised in polite uh, discourse. You won't hear it on National Public Radio or the Charlie Rose Show or the News Hour on PBS or any of the other, you know, kind of elite outlets uh, that are out there, nor in the New York Times or the Washington Post and certainly not in the Boston uh, Globe. And that's the issue of U.S. imperialism. Imperialism is uh, is, is a term used for other countries and other histories. Not for us. We are the exceptional nation, as uh, Trump and Obama and others before him have uh, proclaimed over and over again. Uh, Madeleine Albright went so far as to say that the United States is the indispensable nation, and when she was asked to clarify what she meant by indispensable, she said, and I'm quoting, we can see farther into the future. So they have to come down extraterrestrial powers here, ESP, that they're able to see in the future to justify uh, their position. Uh, there was an Austrian uh, sociologist, who, uh, Joseph Schumpeter, who wrote an essay called uh, The Sociology of Imperialisms. I'm going to read you just this one short paragraph, and every time you hear the word Rome or Roman, just insert United States or American, and I think you'll get the drift There was no corner of the world where some interest was not alleged to be in danger or under actual attack. If the interests were not Roman, they were of Rome's allies. And if Rome had no allies, well, then allies would be invented. When it was utterly impossible to do that, then it was the national honor that was insulted. The fight was always invested with an aura of legality. Rome was always being attacked by evil-minded uh, neighbors. The whole world was pervaded by a host of enemies, and it was Rome's duty to guard against their aggressive uh, designs. And I think, you know, if you think about, you know, US, US foreign policy, I think you have to attach the word imperialism and the adjective US or American uh, before it. Imperial systems are sustained not only through violence, because we have the largest military in the world, or its threat, but through a network of client states and dependent regimes as well. So the US has uh, a whole network of uh, allies that can be used for different services. Uh, If things get really hot, then of course, the US military will directly intervene. But when local things can be solved by the local representatives of the empire, uh, then uh, they will uh, do that. Uh, there's some terrific books about this, which I doubt are being taught you know, on this campus or elsewhere. Uh, Franz Fanon, The Wretched of the Earth. Well, it is being taught. I think, uh, Henry, you've, you've used it in your classes. Uh, Ame César, another anti colonial, uh, anti imperialist. Uh, Amalcar Cabral. Nagugi Wationi of uh, Kenya, who's written a very important book called "Decolonizing the Mind." You know, we all think we're independent, and you know, we're smart, and we're cool, we're U.S. people, and we can see through the propaganda. We too are—we are saturated with uh, propaganda, you know—and we need to deconstruct these, you know, these uh, the torrent of, of lies and prevarications and mendacities that keep flowing from officialdom and then are regurgitated through the corporate control uh, media that that book is very very important uh, to get a hold of uh, as well and chomsky of course is, as was mentioned in the introduction you know probably our greatest public uh, intellectual has been assiduously you know demarcating the parameters of us imperialism and the propaganda system that props it up, that makes it all uh, possible and palatable for us, because otherwise it would be difficult to pull off. If you know we were going into countries to steal their resources, you might have second thoughts about you know, supporting the policy or even wanting your son or daughter or grandson or granddaughter or you yourself to join the military when you realize that you're actually the muscle, you know, a front for US capitalist corporations that want to make more and more money, and so want to extract more and more iron ore, bauxite, copper, aluminum, oil, natural gas, you name uh, the resource. uh, The US military is often there uh, trying to uh, extract it, or at least uh, to protect it. And so imperial systems are sustained not only through violence or threat, but through this network of uh, clients. Now we see Sisi in Egypt, uh, Netanyahu in Israel, Uh, Erdogan allows a huge military base to be used inside of Turkey, even though he's committing uh, massive crimes uh, indisputably. Uh, massive crimes against uh, hu- humanity and, and the Turkish uh, population. 150,000 uh, civil servants, uh, judges, lawyers, um, public uh, state attorneys uh, have lost their jobs, uh, fired by Erdogan because of their supposed involvement uh, in a coup in July of, of uh, 2016. Uh, fully 10 to 20,000 have been imprisoned, are under arrest. Journalists have been arrested, assaulted, assassinated. Even before the current wave, you may have heard of the prominent Turkish-Armenian journalist uh, Haran Dink, uh, who was murdered uh, in front of his office in downtown Istanbul in broad daylight because he had the temerity and the audacity to say that the Turkish state should acknowledge its crimes. Uh, against uh, the Armenian uh, people. So, this is still, I think, a burning uh, issue uh, in uh, Turkey. And I know Henry, in his introduction, said, you know, maybe I should talk a little bit about my background and how I got involved. Well, I must say that the genocide of the Armenians cast a huge shadow over me and I think made me uh, what I am today, whatever that might be uh, an independent journalist, a rabble rouser. You know, an anti-establishment person. Yes, I, am a, I own up to all of those things. Because this thing was, I, I grew up in the first generation uh, after the genocide. So I was surrounded by survivors, including the few family members that the Turks d- did not kill. I was growing up in, in New York in the 1950s. And, you know, I would ask questions. I'd be curious, you know, how come I don't have any grandparents? You know, how come I don't have any aunts and uncles? How come there are so few cousins? You know, what happened? Oh, you know, we don't want to talk about that. There was a great reluctance to, to, uh, you know, to open up those wounds, which were so uh, acute and so uh, painful. But I was persistent. And those were the very first interviews I ever did, were with survivors. And believe me, they were the hardest interviews I've ever done. I mean, interviewing Noam Chomsky is a walk in the park, or Edward Said, or Tarek Ali, or Arundhati Roy, or Howard Zinn, or any of the people that you know I deal with uh, today. Uh, to talk to you know people firsthand, you know, to see tears coming up in their eyes, it, you know, in their eyes makes me uh, choke up. And to talk to your mother, you know, and because she was the the lone survivor of a, of a family of uh, 25, she lost. Uh, four, Three brothers directly, one indirectly. Uh, her parents were murdered. Um, all of that was in the family closet, and I wanted to know what happened. And that's, That brought to me the importance of knowing and understanding history. Why things happen. What, you know, what explains uh, these kinds of um, what seem to be uh, hysterical and fanatical outbursts of hatred resulting in you know, mass deaths and mass uh, sufferings. As a card on this continent, you know, I read a, a comment, uh, I think it was in the New York Times. Uh, it was kind of in praise of Germany for, for a country, if I can get the right language, acknowledging its historic crimes. You know, we haven't acknowledged the historic crimes committed in this country by the European settlers. There's never been an owning up to that. There's a Holocaust Museum in Washington DC on the Mall the US had very little to do with the Holocaust, except deny Jewish refugees access to, uh, to the United States. But uh, there is no museum uh, for African-Americans. There is no museum for uh, Native Americans. I think that's actually changing now. There is a, a movement in that direction. But we have not acknowledged our historical crimes. And I think that it makes it difficult to move forward when you don't know your past. And the past dictates the present, and the present influences the future. George Orwell said something comparable uh, to that in 1984. And the lack of acknowledgement of what's happened, uh, the suffering uh, that was uh, inflicted on various groups, but particularly Native Americans, who were the target of extermination, uh, they were called savage beasts. In the Declaration of Independence, uh, George Washington compared them to wolves and uh, wild animals. You know, these are uh, the founding fathers, right? That we're all supposed to uh, venerate. They, were, they too were, you know, deeply flawed. Slave owners, of course, and rapists. You know, many of the um, children of Jefferson uh, were, as a result of Jefferson ra- raping uh, the sl- slaves. So to, come, to overcome, to understand where we are, we have to know where we've been. And to understand where we're going, we have to understand where we are uh, today. And I think you know, a, a media system and an educational system provides you with those tools, or ideally should provide you with tools to deconstruct arguments, to understand uh, and decode uh, propaganda, and to you know, break down and parse. Uh, the different kind of arguments uh, that are made. That would be, to me, one of the most valuable things I could possibly learn in an educational system, which I barely got through, by the way. And I say this for the young people in the audience maybe as an encouragement. Uh, I barely graduated from high school. I had to go to summer school to make up some courses. You know, So I'm not, uh, I don't have credentials. I'm doing what I'm doing totally, uh, you know, as a kind of radical, wild-eyed idea I had to start a weekly radio show because I wanted to get radical ideas and progressive ideas out to a larger audience. And I remember my brother, Barsal, uh he said, you mean you're going to try and make money doing that? He lived in Jersey for a long time. Uh, you know, who's going to pay for that? You're never going to make any money, David. Do something smart with your brains. You know, you got some brains. Do something you can use. Use your brains. No one's going to pay you for a program they just heard for free on the radio. And I, no one encouraged me to do, what, to do what I did, actually. They all said, well, you, know, I, you have no capital. Who's going to listen? Uh, how are you going to do the programs? You don't have a studio. Yada, yada, yada. All kinds of obstacles. But, you know... We have to, in the words of the greatest philosopher of the 20th century, Muhammad Ali, that Muhammad Ali, the boxer, the world champion, he said, float like a butterfly, but sting like a bee. So we have to be very agile. We have to be very uh, spry and nimble. Uh, but we also have to have a little bite there you know, in case someone tries to intrude on your particular uh, space. So floating like a butterfly, stinging like a bee. I started Alternative Radio, and it's now on uh, 260 stations uh, around the world. I hope you'll tune in on Wednesdays uh, here in Worcester, WCUW, Wednesdays from noon to 1. They're free podcasts. Uh, There's some free videos. Just go to my website, alternativeradio.org. There's a couple of catalogs left, left here. Uh, and now comes the, one of the most difficult parts of any of my presentations, because uh, usually I'm very critical of uh, capitalism. But then I, I resort to capitalist uh, kind of techniques of salesmanship. And I've, got, I've brought a set of five CDs of five of the latest programs that I've just produced. Um, Noam Chomsky on neoliberalism. Max Blumenthal on Palestine, 50 Years of Occupation. Chris Hedges, who's probably the best journalist in the country today, stopping fascism. Vandana Shiva, a great Indian uh, activist and physicist on uh, eco-social justice and global feminism. And Richard Wolff, who's, I think, the best economist on explaining uh, leftist uh, economics, Marxist economics. So there's five one-hour programs for 25 bucks. If you ordered them from Boulder, it would be 80 bucks. So that's the bargain. Uh, the books are over there. I've got four or five copies left. I'd love to, um, you know, sign them uh, for you. I'm going to conclude. That's an applause line, folks. <laughs> Finally, I've been waiting. I've been waiting too. Well, let me let me quote from um, one of uh, my heroes and someone who's influenced me. Uh, tremendously the Boston University history professor uh, Howard Zinn whose book a people's history of the united states uh, really broke ground into uncovering uh, the hidden past of, of this country and don't get me wrong i mean there's lots of things to celebrate in you know and i do celebrate them in the united states you know including you know rock and roll and allen ginsberg and the mountains and the rivers and you know all the great things poetry, music, theater, dance, uh, that we haven't have not in the country. But there is a history there, and Zinn went to the original sources and uncovered a lot of stuff. Uh, his work now has been followed up by uh, Roxanne Dunbar Ortiz, a wonderful Native American historian who you know, is writing about uh, na- history through the eyes of the Native American uh, experience. Anyway, uh, Howard Zinn said, the history of social change is the history of millions of actions, small and large. Millions of actions, small and large. You know, one of the ways they keep us in line and keep us boxed in, saying, is to convince you that, you know, you really should worry about the latest episode of Game of Thrones and make sure you don't miss it. Or, you know, what's happening with uh, Angelina Jolie and would she get back together with Brad Pitt, really? What was at, what was at the center of that divorce? And then, of course, who could I as an Armenian, how could I not, not mention the deplorable Kardashian family you know, which dominates the airwaves, or all of these housewife programs on uh, TV you know Malibu Housewives, um, Hampton Housewives, Atlanta and New York you haven't even watched any of these you know, it's, all, it's all about you know getting your hair right, getting the right contact lenses, getting the right you know figure. In, The right diet and this and that. They've never had a program like Housewives of Aleppo. Now, wouldn't that be interesting? That might make us a little uncomfortable, right? Or Housewives of Fallujah, you know, or Housewives of uh, Anjar, you know, other places in uh, the Middle East. That might make us a little uncomfortable. So let's stay with, you know, that kind of frivolity. So, small acts, that's what Zim talked about. You know, we all want to change the world. It's a lofty goal, but it's kind of hard to do by yourself. But collectively, we can move mountains. And then, historically, that's how change has happened. I mean, there might be a charismatic leader who comes along like Martin Luther King Jr. or Mahatma Gandhi in India you know, to lead a, a, a freedom struggle. But there were millions of people behind that doing the work knocking on doors making the phone calls organizing boycotts and uh, demonstrations so that's you know that's how social change happens it happens poco a poco it happens step by step not you know overnight it requires solidarity it requires coming together finding common ground you know we're too way particularly on the left this has been a terminal affliction of leftist parties in the United States and their kind of you know drive for purity. You know, I can't talk to that person because you know she's a Yankee fan. Whoa! So you know, you're out, you're out the window. Uh, you know, this person thinks Trotsky was right. Oh, can't talk to her. This person thinks you know the Nicaraguan Sandinistas uh, were uh, you know an admirable group or whatever. Can't talk to that. You know, pretty soon there's nobody left. You know, we've cut everybody out. The possibility of bridge building is then uh, eliminated because of this race, this false race to purity and ideological conformity. Of course we're going to have differences. The important thing is to find common ground. On this campus, could, do you think it should be tuition-free? Could I get students to get, get behind something like that? Or do you think it's okay to pay $10,000 $10, a year go into debt? You know, I'm, I'm asking you. I think I can get you to do that. It would be something that you could all find common ground around. So change happens, people coming together at critical points to create people power, to create movements. And about, um, actually, there's a wonderful uh, US philosopher and writer, he's dead now unfortunately, his name is Neil Postman. He wrote a very important book called Amusing Ourselves to Death. In the 1970s and 80s, he saw what was happening to US culture. That television was hijacking our optic nerves. That television, commercial television in particular, was uh, taking over our brains and saturating us with images. This is what he wrote. When a population becomes distracted by trivia, when cultural life is redefined as a perpetual round of entertainments, when serious public conversation becomes a form of baby talk, when in short a people become an audience and their public business a vaudeville act, then a nation finds itself at risk. And we are at that point today as a nation at risk. That allows for someone who is an obvious charlatan and, uh, uh, such as Donald Trump to get 62 million votes. I mean, that's very sober. This is not someone you know who just got a few thousand votes. 62 million of our fellow citizens put this guy uh, in the White House. There's the marginalization of dissent. There's the celebrityitis the over you know who got the latest Hollywood divorce? What about this movie? What about this scandal? You know, sex always sells. We've become a tabloid civilization where we you know we focus on the the frolics and the shortcomings of the rich and famous. You know what's happening in Palm Palm Springs or West Palm Beach at these mega mansions and, and MiG Mansions and the like. So uh, we, we are narcotized as a people. We have to break through that numbness to create, you know, a viable society. So I'm getting the time out sign. I could read you a poem in Urdu by Faiz Emmett Faiz, but there's no time for that. I'm going to close with a radical American voice you should all know and honor, Frederick Douglass. Uh, he made these comments in 1857, August 4th, to be exact. He said, if there is no struggle, there is no progress. Those who profess to favor freedom and yet deprecate agitation are humans who want crops without plowing the ground. They want rain without thunder and lightning. They want the ocean without the roar of its mighty waters. The struggle may be a moral one, or it may be a physical one. Or it may be both moral and physical. But it must be a struggle. Power concedes nothing without a demand. It never has, and it never will. Thank you very much.